Pulp Fiction may have been all the rage in 1994, but does it still hold up? Today I'm discussing why Quentin Tarantino's second film is considered a classic. This is Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. Hello, movie friends. Welcome to Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. I am Scott, and today I am talking uh, about why Pulp Fiction is considered a classic and uh, kind of revisiting an old series, which is um, suggested movies, people asking why is X movie a classic, and thought I'd go with uh, Quentin Tarantino's biggest breakout movie. So Reservoir Dogs was kind of the movie that made him at least known as an entity in the film world, but that movie only became as well-known as it is after Pulp Fiction skyrocketed him even further to fame. So without further ado, let's get started. In 1994, the movie world was rocked by the success of Quentin Tarantino's second film, Pulp Fiction. The episodic film that weaves in and out of criminal mischief with a washed-up boxer, two hitmen, a crime boss, and the crime boss's alluring wife was a massive box office and critical hit and made its director, Quentin Tarantino, a household name. It's also a ruthlessly violent movie full of edgy language choices, sexual assault, and no central plot to pull everything together. So why did this movie break through in a way few movies do? Why is Pulp Fiction considered a classic? So let's start with the setup for the film. The film is best understood through the main stories that make up the full story, so in order. First, we open with a couple talking about how holding up a restaurant is a great idea before doing exactly that. Number two, we cut to two hitmen, Jules and Winfield, uh, Jules Winfield and Vincent Vega, who debate the intimacy of foot massages before carrying out their boss's vengeance. Number three, Vincent Vega takes out his boss's wife to dinner, which goes well until it doesn't. Number four, we get a great monologue from Christopher Walken before cutting to Bruce Willis's washed-up boxer who wrongs our crime boss, Marcellus Wallace, and accidentally runs afoul of more than a few folks as he tries to get back his father's watch before fleeing town. And number five... Jules and Vincent survive an attempt on their lives, have to contend with a bloody corpse in their car, and then grab breakfast. If you're trying to figure out the order of events, it goes two, five, one, one, and then one jumps in in the middle of five, and then three and four. So how did everyone react at the time this film came out? Pulp Fiction was a smash success right out of the gate. It debuted at the Cannes Film Festival, where it won the Palme d'Or, the festival's highest honor, before being released in the fall of 1994. From there, it received another wave of praise from critics and audiences, and it earned over $200 million at the box office worldwide on a budget of less than $10 million, and received seven Academy Award nominations and one win for Best Original Screenplay. It has since appeared on many best movies of all time lists, including the AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, which is pretty strange for a a movie with no structure. So let's get into the first reason this movie stands out and is considered a classic, structure. Pulp Fiction isn't the first movie to use episodic storytelling, jump between lead characters, or mess with its own timeline. But mainstream American movies hadn't seen anything like this, because while Tarantino's later films would enjoy indulgent flashbacks to pepper in details with other characters, Pulp Fiction abandons the idea of a coherent story structure. 
It's fairly easy to place where each segment occurs in the film's timeline, something as simple uh, as the film's technically ending in the middle of its own out of its own chains of events it demonstrates what I'm talking about. There's no beginning, middle, and end. It's just a movie. That structure, along with some other stylistic elements, we'll get to them later, is what led a lot of critics to refer to the film as a definitive postmodern or self-aware film. It didn't hurt that no one else was putting out movies like this. While foreign cinema had been playing with multiple storylines or elements like it for decades, American movies of this age were pretty formulaic, so anything mildly entertaining that messed with the distinct, that distinctive structure felt like a breath of fresh air. It's, often, it's also even more wonky with its timeline than Tarantino's previous film Reservoir Dogs. And I'd argue that episodic structure plays to Tarantino's strengths. The biggest hindrance with a lot of Tarantino's latest, later movies is his insistence on crafting a 2.5 hour film, regardless of whether the film has enough plot to sustain the runtime. As much fun as it is to watch Samuel L. Jackson talk, having him do it for 2.5 hours isn't as fun. And when you weave these characters in and out of action and have them talk about philosophy, physical intimacy, and pop culture while dealing with more pressing problems like drug overdoses, dead bodies, and more, it's darkly funny and a lot of fun. Speaking of that dialogue, that's reason number two. Tarantino fans know that his movies are all about the talking. He's demonstrated an ability to film action, but you can tell his favorite stuff is when his characters monologue or go back and forth about a random pop culture fascination. We saw glimpses of this in Reservoir Dogs, see Tarantino himself delivering a monologue about the Madonna track, Like a Virgin, but that was almost always less compelling than the tension on screen. Here, the dialogue is front and center and often has nothing to do with what's happening on screen. Jules and Vincent are going getting ready to whack somebody, and they're talking about hamburgers in Amsterdam and foot massages. And believe it or not, this was revolutionary for American movies. Historically, the dialogue in American movies is driven by two things, plot or character. Either someone is explaining what's going on, trying to make a plan, or sharing something about themselves. And there's nothing wrong with this. This is how to tell a story as efficiently and effectively as possible. But after a while, it also lacks personality. It's kind of how people in a workplace comedy only seem to talk about work or thing happening at work. You know, there's moments where they just ask somebody if they saw the game or their favorite TV show last night. And Pulp Fiction is a movie made out of those moments. Conversations between friends and colleagues about TV shows, culture, and relationships that have nothing to do with what's happening on screen. Mostly. And if you pepper in a series of violent misadventures that go along with that, you're in business. It's also not like the movie is wanting for memorable characters. And now we get into reason number three, which is the characters and the acting. It's telling that you can uh, you can tell three of these movies' characters all by their costume. All Oscar-nominated, too. Uma Thurman's Mia Wallace looks like a modern femme fatale, blend with a faster pussycat kill-kill vibe. John Travolta's Vincent Vega is quietly cool. And then there's Samuel L. Jackson, Jules Winfield, who is one of the few movie characters who can convincingly carry a wallet that says bad motherfucker on it. Every actor crushes their role so hard that it defined their type for years to come, if not in perpetuity. John Travolta, once the perpetual pretty boy who was defined by his physicality and melodramatic acting style, demonstrated restraint and a villainous side nobody had seen before, so much so that he triggered the first of his many career revivals. 
Uma Thurman's Mia Wallace made Thurman a sex symbol overnight and shifted her into leading lady status. And Samuel L. Jackson's entire on-screen persona can be traced back to this movie. By this point in his career, Jackson was starting to pick up a number of prominent supporting roles in movies like Jungle Fever, Juice, and Jurassic Park, and other movies that don't start with Jay. He was getting work, but he wasn't a household name. Pulp Fiction changed that. Now, Samuel L. Jackson was the foul-mouthed badass of the ages who can play a hero or a villain at will. You'll hear his Ezekiel 25:17 speech used as drop on radio shows, and he even did an audiobook for a book, comedy children's book, called Go the Fuck to Sleep. Jackson doesn't play Shaft without this movie. And then we get into what the movie is really about, which it could be a bunch of things. It's easy to read Pulp Fiction as a movie about nothing that, much like Tarantino himself, is recycling elements from other cinema into something entirely its own. But beneath the surface, you actually get to a number of stories about connection, failure, and redemption. Not that the fans know that, though. Something that's so telling in if, about the effectiveness of this movie's visual language is how some uh, a stylistic element such as the glow from <laughs> such as the glow from the the infamous briefcase is actually just an homage to a, a French film, like I believe a Godard movie, and doesn't really have anything to do with the plot. So not meant to be anything, but the theories have ranged from it's gold to. Uh, it, it contains Marcellus Wallace's soul. So that's the level of what we, we can often get to. So a little off the reservation in that regard. And then reason number five that uh, people like this movie are the extras. While I'd argue Quentin T Tarantino really came into his distinctive style later in his career, Pulp Fiction is where more of his offbeat choices and the ones that stick in your brain start to pop up. Uma Thurman making the square that appears on screen, Christopher Walken's monologue about the watch, the dark-as-fuck-like moments like Jules shooting a man in the face and then asking, Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? Even the larger-than-life approach to Marcellus Wallace so we don't even see his face until later in the film. That's all classic Tarantino stuff that makes the movie stand out and more memorable over time. And now we have to get into what doesn't work. Like most films, the stylistic elements that make Pulp Fiction stand out are also what some people hate about it. They don't like the episodic dialogue-driven nature of the film, and that's fine. But it's not a legitimate problem with the movie. And there are problems. The element that stands out the most, both when it came out and now, is Pulp Fiction's language. Not the persistent motherfucker being used like a comma, we do like Scorsese movies here, but rather the use of racial epithets. Specifically Tarantino himself using the word an awful lot of times, very freely, in a row. This is the movie that got Spike Lee mad and started a personal and professional beef that has seemingly lasted until this day. And I get Lee's position. Tarantino saying the word with that amount of anger and that hard R is really rough and really unnecessary. It feels like he's trying to be shocking more than anything else. Especially for a character who is allegedly friends with Jackson's jewels, this makes no sense. And now we have to talk about the sexual assault scene. Without getting too into the weeds, one of the stories involves two characters being captured by racist rapists and a man proceeding to rape another man, very violently in the background for a number of scenes with the quote-unquote gimp nearby. The rapists are all killed, but I gotta be honest, Everything about this is ugly. The L.A. guy who is Southern for no reason and might be gay and is also a predator and ugh, it's very bad. Could have reworked this scene into something similar that's less 
gross. And gross just in terms of what's being presented, not necessarily the idea. Visually, this is also one of Tarantino's least interesting films. The shots are almost exclusively limited to shot reverse shots or dimly lit locations. It looks and feels a lot like an independent film made in the 90s. And I'd argue that his most interesting visual storytelling began in Kill Bill and has continued on since. And finally, we get to Pulp Fiction's main problem, a generation of movies that mimicked, were inspired by, or failed to get why it worked, including films by Pulp Fiction's own filmmaker. If you grew up in the 90s and early 2000s, you probably saw about 12 different movies that featured larger-than-life crime, that were larger-than-life crime flicks with rapid-fire pop culture-infused dialogue, badass monologue-spouting characters who tell you everything about them with their, themselves with their costuming, and a series of darkly funny misadventures. And some of them are very good. Guy Ritchie's Snatch came out in 2000 and quickly developed a cult following, thanks to Ritchie's knack for... Sorry, knack for wisecracking crooks and criminal misadventures, much like Pulp Fiction, but with far more visual panache and variety. So much so that going to Pulp Fiction's plainer palette and the stagnant camera might feel like a downgrade. But for every snatch, there's three or four Way of the Guns, Suicide Kings, or Boondock Saints. You can also credit the success of this film and Clerks with popularizing pop culture references and dialogue, no matter how awkward. The main thing people didn't learn about Tarantino's dialogue, or what Tarantino inherently understands, is that references to cultural items are best when they're in reference to general ideas or things that have withstood the test of time. The Like a Virgin monologue may not be a groundbreaking new ground nowadays, but anyone with a passing knowledge of pop culture knows that song. Same goes for Bill's monologue about Superman in Kill Bill Volume 2. We all know who Superman is. But making a deep Hunger Games reference outside of Katniss's skills as, as an archer, your movie is immediately dated. Then there's Tarantino's own movies after the fact. As engrossing as the dialogue and performances are in Pulp Fiction, you can tell that Tarantino hadn't mastered suspense yet. Comparing the drug overdose scene to the opening of Inglorious Bastards, for instance, shows how much of Tarantino's craft, both as a writer and director, have evolved. As revolutionary as it is, there's an easy argument to make that it isn't even Tarantino's best film. In short, Pulp Fiction is a classic because it broke rules and new ground, but nowadays that ground has been covered 11 or 13 times over, and often better. This has been Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to join our Facebook group, Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie World, for the latest reviews, discussions, and more. See you next time, everybody, and stay safe.